Anglican Diocese of the South. Thank you for listening.
Why, why do we do that? I want to correct some misconceptions about church planting that are out there. And I want to talk to you about how, how, are we gonna, how can we do this? What, what does it look like for us to do this as the Anglican Diocese of the South? I don't have that much time, and it's a broad topic, so I'm moving quickly. So buckle up. All right, so here we go. Why, why do we talk about church planting? And here's where we start, because this is where we start with everything. As biblical Anglican. We start here. People will ask me sometimes, Dan, where, you just said it's one of the most important things we do as the church. Well, where does it say, go plant churches in the Bible? Well, there is no verse in the Bible that says, go plant churches. But you cannot understand the thrust and the overall narrative of the scripture without, under, without seeing church planting as a significant major part of it. It is... The Bible doesn't have to say, go plant churches. Because if they didn't have plant churches, none of the New Testament makes any sense. It's underneath all of it and everything. Let me, I want to take some time in this. Because I want you to see that there's that, that church planting is not just a methodological or missiological decision. Sometimes when we come about why do we plant churches, we come at it strictly from statistics. And we'll get there. I'll show you some of the reasons why, statistically, church planting uh, is, is one of the most effective missional methods that we have. We'll get there. But we need to start here. And when I say start here, I don't just mean Matthew chapter 28. I mean Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Okay, so here's the story that we live in in the Scripture. I'm not going to, if we had more time, I would go through this verse by verse with you. But we don't have time. So I'm going to give you the summary of this. Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 is written as a poem, right? It's a, it is a beautiful description of God creating the universe. God creating the world. And it's written in this poetry that has a rhythm to it and a, and a flow, almost a strut to it. When you read it with that, with that poetic rhythm with, with which it's written, on the first day, God said, and it was, and God saw that it was good. On the second day, God said, and it was, God saw that it was good. On the third day, God said, and it was. I mean, there's a, there's a movement, there's a beauty, there's a rhythm to creation. And then he creates... He creates the, the world, and it's a, it's a vast wilderness. It says in chapter 2 that there were no bushes, no trees, it hadn't rained or anything yet. And God planted a garden in the east. So you get this picture then of a vast, sort of untamed wilderness and a lush garden in it. And then he creates man, and he puts him in the garden. He creates woman and puts her in the garden. And then he says this to them. Go. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I, I just picture in my head that, that he's on the edge of the garden with Adam and Eve, and he's got his arms around them, and, and their back is to the garden, and their, and their face is to the untamed wilderness, and he says, Go, be fruitful, multiply. Do you see what I've created here? Now, I want you to go tame them. Go make the rest of the world look like this. Go, go participate with me in creation. Make, make a people that will participate with me in, in this creation of the world, in this harmony, will dance with me in this, this rhythm and this, this music that I've given to you in creation. Go 
go. You have you are a, you are two people, and I'm calling you to be fruitful and multiply. To which Adam went, I like that part. And uh, and he said, and he said, go, make a people, go, go out. So there's a people with a mission, a people with a purpose. Now it all gets funky in Genesis chapter three. Right? It doesn't last very long. That whole rhythm thing. In Genesis chapter 3 is where the fall comes in. What we start to see when sin enters into the world is that they still go. But, but what comes out of their going is something that is undone. Right? We see them start to be fruitful and multiply. And they have Cain and Abel. And, and instead of it reflecting this, huge, this, this harmony and this beauty... We see it broken and twisted in death. Right? And that spreads from there until the whole earth is wicked. And so there's this, there's this moment where there's the, the great children's story of when God drowned everybody in the whole world except for Noah. And so, and so that we can have beautiful nursery bedding um, with, with animals everywhere. And I've always wanted to see a dust ruffle with like floating bodies. I mean, you know, that's never there. Alright, so, so, so we have Noah, and we have the whole ark, and then when Noah comes off of the ark in Genesis, I think it's around chapter 9, God looks at him and what does he say to him? Go! Be fruitful! Multiply! Fill the earth! Subdue it! God's plan hasn't changed. God's idea hasn't Changed. So this works with Noah for, I don't know, long enough for grapes to grow. And then the fermentation process is like a month or so. And then he has this little drunken party outside. And it all goes badly again, right? And we start to see after Genesis chapter 9, we start to get into the table of nations. This part that you never read, right? Where it says, and he begat him, and he begat him, and he had his sons. And, then, and you start to get into this guy named Nimrod. I don't know why somebody named their son Nimrod, but they did. And so, and so and Nimrod starts these different communities. And, and you see Babel, Babylon start. And you see Assyria start. And you see Egypt start. And so what, what you see is, is that the, uh, the, the people are going and they're multiplying. But what they're creating is not this reflection of the kingdom of God. It's an, it's an anti-kingdom. Right? It's, it's, a broken, it's, a, it's a broken response to a glorious call. And, and you see this in the Tower of Babel, right? Why is that story even in the Bible? What is that? It's weird. But, but what you see when the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel is that the people come together and it says this. All right, let's gather together. Let's use the intellect that God has given us. Let's use the gift that God has given us. Let's, let's use the potential of creation engineering and, and architecture that God has created, that He has called us to release. And so what we're going to use that for then is to build, is to build a city and a tower to make a name for ourselves. And go back and read it, it says this, so that we will not be spread across the face of the earth. What had God called them to do? Go to the ends of the earth. Go, God has said go. So they're using the gifts that God has given them for the exact opposite of what God has called them to do. Instead of going to the end of the earth to, to bring glory to His name, they're staying in one place to bring glory to themselves. So God confuses their language, and then He spreads them out 
And it says, and from there, they were spread across the whole earth. God's plan will not be thwarted. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So then right after that, we have this, we have this amazing moment where things start to change. Where instead of God just entreating us and saying, go, 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 go. He, he chooses Abraham and he says to him what? Go to the place I will show you. But then he says this, and I will make you into a great nation. A people. You go, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll give you a land. I will, I will bless you and every nation on earth will be blessed through you. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. I mean, that's, it's, the same, it's the same call. When Abraham's people were enslaved in Egypt and God sends Charlton Heston to bring them out, then <laughs> he goes, he, he goes into one, what does he say to the people? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will be your God, and you will be my people. people. So go to the land that I will show you. Are you catching a theme here? God is creating a people, constantly creating a people. What does he say to the Israelites? You will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and all the nations on the earth will be blessed through you. What is a kingdom of priests? What is a priest supposed to do? Stand between the people and God to usher them into his presence, to teach the glory of God to the people. You're going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. You're going to be my people. Well, this part of the Bible shows how that didn't work for Israel. Right? I mean, over and over again, they fail. And when the prophets come, when the prophets come, what do they say over and over again? Don't you remember? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who saved you and brought you out of Egypt. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. So come back. Come back, come back, come back. And do they? Every now and then. For a little while. But then onto this stage is when Jesus walked. When Jesus, who is different than any prophet who has come before, different than Moses, different than even Abraham, God himself walked among us. And in this hypostatic union, this, this, this intersection of divinity and humanity, we have in Jesus, one of us, but also God himself, who can bridge the gap like no other. Who says, he comes and he, and he lives a sinless life. He makes atonement for the sins of the people on the cross. He delivers us from our greatest enemy, not Egypt, but death itself through the resurrection. He brings the word of God like the prophets, and he gathers to himself a people. We've become so hyper-individualized in the West that we have made salvation just an individual momentary act of the will. But the scripture teaches salvation as there is a people being saved. And when you are baptized, you are brought into the people. Amen. It's not just you in your Bible, in your Jesus, in your... No, it's a people that he's making. 
who are going to inherit the land that he's given them. And it's not a dusty patch in the, in the, in the Far East or the Middle East. This is heaven he's talking about. This is the new heaven and the new earth. Right? So, so, so this theme of God making the people for a purpose to go and bring his glory and his goodness and participate in creation has been a theme throughout the scripture. And so then when Jesus comes and he's gathering the people to himself, he starts to say things like this. He gathers his church together and he says things like this. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Wait until power comes upon you from on high. And then you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. What is he saying? Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Whereas he had Adam and Eve around his shoulders like this, and he says, you've seen this lush garden, you've seen this wasteland, go make the rest of the world look like that for the glory of my name. Now he has his arms around his disciples, and he says, you've seen the gospel in the church, you've seen what it's like to be with God, you know what the good news of God is like, now that is a vast, untamed wilderness, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's the same plan. It's the same message. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls, and what does He do? He reverses Babel. Right? He, he starts to, instead of just confusing their languages so that they can't work against Him in that particular way, He gives them the words of all these different languages so that they come together for one purpose. To teach his word, to bring the people back to their God. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. So now, how did the disciples start to live this out? How did they do it? I mean, we could stop here, and that'd be inspirational. Right? We can stop here and go, let's pray. And if the Lord is calling you, we're going to play just as I am. You can walk down the front here. We're going to be, that would be inspirational. But we don't ask the next question. So how did they go about doing the work? What happens when you start to read Acts? They planted churches. That's what they did. And you know the first thing they did? They planted one in Jerusalem. But the call was, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. Samaria to the ends of the earth. First few chapters, things are going well in Jerusalem. I mean, there's that little fight over the food and widows. But anyway, they, they worked out. That's why we have deacons, because you fix everything. Um, and so, so, so they plant this church in Jerusalem, and it's growing, and they're baptizing, and they're making disciples, and it's great. But they're not going out from there. So a persecution breaks out. In other words, God kind of kicks the fire, and there's sparks that go all everywhere. And, and there's this unnamed group of folks. I love it. There's, there's this unnamed group. We don't know who they are. And they went up preaching the gospel as they left Jerusalem, and they got to a place called Antioch. And they started preaching the gospel there, and they planted a church. And they had this guy named Barnabas helping them out. And then God, God was doing something else with this other guy named Paul. 
and was raising up a leader. And they connected Paul and Barnabas together. And then they started going out and doing the work of mission. And they had a little spat as well um, over Mark. And there was all these little issues. But what happened out of Antioch is that churches started to be planted in Rome and Philippi, Galatia. Right? All over, they planted churches. So what we see in Acts is constantly churches being planted. Then the rest of the New Testament are letters to churches that were planted or to their leaders. And then you have the book of Revelation. And how does the book of Revelation start? Letters to seven churches. Are you following me here? Where does it say in the Bible to go plant churches? Here. <laughs> so they have this great and glorious mission. They have this, they have this, uh, this I'm going to make a people and send them on my mission. And they have this, this, they're given this great promise. Listen, one day I'm going to return. One day I'm going to come and I'm going to make all things new. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bring creation to completion. And there will be no more sin. And there will be no more separation. And what do we have a picture of? And that great and glorious new heaven and new earth. All of God's people. Every tongue and tribe and nation. Gathered around his throne. Not, not some, some crazy rapture where you're sucked out of your sunroof out. And then the, and the earth is left on its own. That is not... We can get into that but, but Jesus comes and makes the earth new, completes the make the rest of the world look like that. And we're participating with him in the redemption of the world. So what I want you to see in this is that when we're talking about mission and church planting, the, the church has always been God's idea. It's not, it's not a supplement to mission. It's not separate from mission. It's not, well, we need to go do mission and then bring people into the church. The church being the church, the church being the faithful people of God, is the church on mission. If you are not on mission, you are not being a faithful church. It's not optional. And church planting for us is, again, not just a methodology. Well, we want to do mission. God's supposed to do that. So wait, what church planting might be a good idea. No, you see, the spread of the church is the spread of the gospel. That's our call as God's people. So we have to be about church planting. We have to. And so we need to think of the church less as um, another parish meeting somewhere with a particular Sunday morning worship time. And more about the spread of the people of God on mission. And when we start to look at it that way, a lot of the things that concern us about church planting start to filter away a little bit. Like if we start another church, and people are going to leave my church and go to their church. It's not your church. <laughs> right? If, well, and we're, going to, we're going to talk about church planting. How, how are we going to pay for all that stuff? <laughs> really? Like, did you just hear this story? And you think God is at this point going, go plant. Oh, I didn't think about the budget. <laughs> Conviction. Church planting has to come from here. Not a missiological understanding, not a, not, a, uh, not a methodological understanding, but a theological, biblical authority that has said, go, and we must listen. 
That's where church planting has to come from. So why do we do church planting? Well, the long answer is, the Bible tells us to. And we're a Bible people, are we not? We cannot look to this just for morals and ethics and sexuality issues and think that we're faithful. We cannot look to this just to find beauty and think that we're faithful. God has called us to go. The, the institution that many of us came out of that's a part of our story, the problem in the Episcopal Church was not just theological things. It was not just theological. That was a major part of it, but it was not just theological. It was missional. And when a church becomes turned in on itself, and it loses the call to go, and it loses the generosity that must come with going, and it loses the, the submission to authority that we have to start from in going, because none of us really want to go, if we're honest. We're really comfortable wherever we are. And so we have to start with a submission to the authority of God that says go. If we lose that, theology comes after. Bad theology follows. Archbishop Foley today warned us against institutionalism. And that is, a, that is a warning that we should take to our very souls. So why church planning? God's told us to. It's in the Bible. Let's, let's, get, some, let's get specific within some church planting uh, statistics and such uh, in, in this day and age. Look, I won't go into all the numbers. I'm not a numbers guy. I tell people I read 65 books of the Bible. I skip numbers um, because I have um, <laughs> um, So people are like, how many of this? How many? Like, I don't know. I don't even know my phone number. I don't know the numbers on this. But here, here's, if you want a, a, a long explanation of this, just look up Tim Keller, Why Church Planted. Just go search for his article. He'll tell you much more specifics than I have. But statistically, church planting is, is the best at reaching young families, it's the best thing that we have for reaching young families. Because a young family can get involved in a church plant quickly. They come in and, uh, and they don't have to worry about, am I sitting in someone else's seat? They don't, they don't, if they come in and go, well, we would like to help out the nursery. There's no one that says, well, for the last 27 years, Miss Marjorie has been taking care of the nursery. So we'll see if Miss Marjorie can fit you in. They come into a church plant. And they come in and say, we're ready to learn, we're ready to grow. They, the church plant says, yes, come. They're hungry for community. And church plants live that out. Now listen, when I say church plants, I'm not saying this, this doesn't happen in the established church. One of the misconceptions I'll deal with quickly later on is that church planters only care about church plants and not about established churches. Which couldn't be farther from the truth, because we're actually hoping that our church plants survive. <laughs> And if they survive, they become established churches. So that is, not, that is so far from the truth. And so when I hear this is happening well in church plants, that doesn't mean I'm saying it's not happening well other places. But statistically speaking, young families connect best with new churches. Church planting is the best method that we have for reaching new people groups. If you want to reach the Korean people, you plant a Korean church. If, if we want to reach and speak the growing Spanish-speaking population in our area, we need to plant Hispanic churches. 
I mean, yes, I love diversity, and I'm not saying let's keep things segregated. I know everybody wants to, in our, in our dialogue that we have right now, that's a discourse is probably a better term. Everybody wants to go, but here's all the reasons why you're a bigot, because you just said that. Calm down. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have diversity in our, church, in our churches. Yes, we should. But there's a specific a people group that speaks mainly Spanish. It's not just a people group that's exactly the same with a different language. There's different cultures, there's different needs, there's different, there's different um, ways of expression, there's different ways of relating. And so a church that is planted to reach that culture specifically has a better opportunity of reaching people than one that tries to import a culture from the outside. So, we, so church planting is the best thing that we have for reaching new people groups. Church planting is the best, statistically speaking, at reaching new residents in an area. For the same reasons as young families, because they connect quickly and they make relationships quickly. And in church plants, every relationship is a new relationship. We've only been together a couple of years with that. And so they come in and they can come in at the base level and get involved and meet people. And so they get connected with these new things, with other new people in their new community where they can quickly invest. Church planting, statistically, is the best method that we have of reaching unbelievers. Um, disproportionate number of unbelievers are brought to the Lord through church planting than through our established churches. And that's just, a, it's, a, it's an anthropological, sociological truth. Just because as our churches grow, we, for one thing, the fervency of mission dies no matter what we do. Our first church that we planted in North Carolina, we ended up building a facility after that, and I'm not saying facilities are bad, I'm kind of building agnostic, I don't care if you have a building or not, um, but, um, um, but, but it changes you. It ch- we, we, we work from our living room into a big facility and walk through that whole process, and my biggest fear that I told the church over and over and over again is that when we get in this new building that we're building, that we're going to feel like, oh, we finally made it, and we'll stop. And, I, and I, ple- I literally cried at the front saying to people, we cannot let this happen. But did it happen to some degree yet? Because we had to start having conversations about, we have air filters in our air conditioning system. And we have to have a system for who's going to change the air filters and how often they have to be checked. Uh, how about that be checked? And what's the spreadsheet where somebody has to put a mark that after they check? We have to spend time on this. And when you're in a church plant and you're sitting in a living room, um, you're looking around and there's eight other people there. Everyone knows that what we have to be about is mission. Everyone knows we have to go out and grow. We have to reach people. We have, to, we have this great vision of what God is doing. We want people to join us in that. Everybody knows that from the beginning. The statistics say that churches under 10 years old grow 80% by unchurched. Churches over 10 years old grow 80% by transfer growth. I'm not saying that's bad. If you're, if you're an established church and you're growing by people transferring in and you're raising them up as disciples and sending them out, bless you. Bless you. And you need to be planting more churches, sending those people out from your midst to plant more churches. But the statistics there say churches under 10 years old, 80% of their growth comes from the unchurched. There's just statistics that we cannot ignore. And why is this? Because this is God's method. We have to go back to the scripture. It's because it's the church being the church. And church planting is just raw gospel at its core. 
I mean, no one comes to a church plant because they like all the programs. <laughs> like, no one has ever showed up at any church plant that I've been a part of and gone, this building is awesome. <laughs> like, hey, it's my house, right? <laughs> no, no people are not drawn to church planting for, for reasons that would distract from the gospel. They're brought because something is happening and God is moving. We need to be planting churches. So quickly, a couple of misconceptions about church plan. This is to help the antagonistic folks a little bit, okay? And maybe remove some of your excuses that you're trying to make right now about why I'm not talking to you. Okay, so, uh, so let, me, let, me, let me unpack this a little bit. Some misconceptions about church planting. Some people think that in order to do the work of church planting, that what we advocate is compromising our Anglican identity. That in order to reach people, we have to become less Anglican. First of all, Let's concentrate first on being more Christian in the Anglican second, okay? But we are not just Christians. We, we find our identity in a particular family and tradition of Anglicanism. And that's not something that we're ashamed of. And that's not something that we hide or something that we have to downplay. In fact, we think that Anglicanism has a lot of tools for the making of disciples. It has a lot of, it has a grasp of, of what the church is supposed to be. We have a high ecclesiology, saying that we understand the church is the hope of the world. Right? We have a high sacramentology, where we're calling people into the family of God through baptism and sharing that community at the table. We have our catechisms, we have our liturgy, we have, I could go on and on, we have our polity system that actually keeps us in line in the mission field. I don't know, I don't know how church planters do this without a bishop. Bishops are not hindrances, well, most of the time, bishops are not hindrances uh, uh, to, uh, not in our diocese, bishop, I'm just saying other dioceses. That bishops are not hindrances to mission, they're gifts. Because sometimes missionaries can be so innovative that they innovate themselves out of faithfulness. And for a bishop to be able to go, come back, right? Oh yeah, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. That is a gift. Right, so there's all these aspects of Anglicanism that I say actually position us to be extremely effective in church planting in this culture. It's not just for low church evangelicals. It's not just for non-investing folks with confetti and laser beams. Like, don't, you don't have to, to think. We have to, to, uh, to sacrifice all of our Anglican identity. No. There is a large breadth within Anglicanism. Low church, high church, broad church, mid church, or sideways church. I don't know what other kind of churches there are. But there is a legitimate Anglican continuum um, that we can live within to best contextualize for where we are. So, I would say it is categorically false that we have to compromise any of our Anglican identity in order to plant churches. In fact, a lot of church plants from, plants from a lot of other traditions, when I go to these interdenominational meetings and leadership meetings and meet their leaders and such, I'm sidebarred all the time with people going, <clears throat> can we find a private place to talk where all of my other non-denominational buddies can't see me? Uh, with the guy with the collar, you know, and we go out and we talk and, they, and they, they're longing for Okay, another misconception or objection. Some people would say, Dan, I hear what you're saying. But we, what we really need to do is just strengthen the churches that we have first. Because we have a lot of smaller churches. And we just need to strengthen all of them first. And then we can go about church planting. Here's the thing. All our churches will never be strong. They, they just won't. And 
In fact, it's a detriment to them to say, let's stop doing the work of church planting in order to turn inward and try to just strengthen what we have. Because the best way to strengthen our small churches, our, our struggling churches, is, is to do the work of church planting. Let me tell you why. Because church planting is an incubator for new leaders. It's a place where new leaders can come and get uh, and learn the missional aspects of church on the front lines. And then as they, as they grow and learn, they're going to be released from those church plants. And where are they going to go? Into our other churches in the diocese. So the way to strengthen our churches and, and strengthen our diocese is to plant churches. People are going to come to church plants and come to know Jesus and then move and go to your church. I was just in, in Peoria, Illinois, two weeks ago. Um, and a woman came up to me, um, and she said, do you, do you remember me? To which I, I just hate that question, right? <laughs> <laughs> so she said, it's, it's Amy Lemieux. Well, it was, I knew who immediately she was at that point. The first church that I had planted in eastern North Carolina, in the military community surrounding Fort Bragg, um, she had been one of the first couples that had been a part of that, that church. And then a few years later, they'd been transferred up uh, into Illinois and had been a part of a church plant up there. And now she was in leadership in the diocese, helping with leading their congregation and their church planting work. So, so by the grace of God, work that we were doing in eastern North Carolina helped strengthen the Diocese of Quincy in Illinois. Right? That's the beauty of what happens within church planting in this way. Church planting is the research and development arm. Look, church plants are nimble, and so they can go, mm, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's try this. And then they do it and go, yeah, that didn't work. Let's try this. Let's try this over here. The larger churches, that's harder for them. And so, and so when new research and development wing church, uh, church plants come and try these things and something works, then that starts to flow into and affect established congregations in healthy ways. You see, church planting is, uh, is, is, is like adding grandchildren into a family. When you have, when you have, uh, my mom, my mom is, um, well, I won't tell you her age because we're probably recording things here. She's older than me. She's struggling. She's got some hip problems. She's got some other things going on. Sometimes when I talk to her on the phone, she's kind of like, yeah, I'm just really not doing well today. Something else fell off of my body. You know? and, uh, and, uh, um, and then when I put my kids on the phone, I say, Mom, you want to talk to Eli or Silas? And she goes, yes! Right? There's a joy in, in new life. Um, and, and it's not competitive, and it's not like she's going, well, why would I? I mean, just because they're new, you love them more than me? Yeah. No, we actually hope that they get old enough to be as old as you one day, right? Like we, we want this to grow, but there's new life with their mess and all. It brings life to the family. Uh, misconception about church planting is that it's always done by hyper-individualistic, maverick um, uh, go against the grain anti-authority folks. It's not true. There's introverted church planters, extroverted church planters, high capacity church planters, very narrow lane kind of church planters. It's just people who are faithful to the call of God. Two more, two more quick misconceptions. 
And I want to give a little bit of a vision for what it's going to take to pursue this more deeply with us. One is, the next one is, is, this is the one that always gets people. Um, we need more money. And we, we have to have more money or people. Here's the thing. They did a, the Lifeway did a, uh, uh, survey. And they surveyed churches and they asked them, they asked them one question. What will you have to have to plant another church? What do you need to plant another church? And across the board, the answer was 20%. Yep. 20% more money, 20% more people. Yep. Here's the thing. That was true for churches of 100 and churches of 1,000. Because, because of our sinful, we still have the blood of Babel within us. That says, well, we want to make sure that we are safe and comfortable and have everything that we need. And then we can talk about maybe going out there. Right? We'll never have enough money and people to start. I mean, how many of you... How many of you who are who are pastors or have or have older children, you meet young families uh, that are going, yeah, yeah, we're, we're talking about having children, but we're just not ready yet, and we want to have more money in our bank account. And you get that smile on your face, right? Where you're like, you're waiting until you're ready and you have enough money, huh? Yeah. <laughs> you're going to be waiting a really long time because I have an 11 year old and a 9 year old, and I am not ready. And they are, they are much more expensive than I ever imagined. I've been trying to find a receipt for both of them for years. I'm just going to take them back. But I, I, but, so it's the same in church planting. You're never going to be ready. But you've got to get out there and do this work. Finally, this final, final misconception is this, or objection. Yeah, but Dan, we already have a church there. Why would we plant a church? Well, listen, there's responsibility in that. We don't, we don't handle this outside of collaboration with one another. And if there's a, if there's a church plant that's doing something great, or a church, an established church, or a church plant that's doing great things here, we don't just drop another one in next to them and go, you know I mean? Like, that doesn't make any sense at, at all. But we like to take this, and our turf mentality tends to go at big. Uh, I was working with a church planter once who, uh, who went and moved to a new city, um, and connected with another Anglican church message. Now, this this uh, city has multi millions of people in the city. Okay, I can tell you where it is. Um, and so he met with this this established church in the middle of the, the city, and uh, and he met with him and said, "Hey, you know, we're here to plant this church. We're not going to be right up here next to you, but just want to want to connect you, want to build relationships, want to do this work together." Wanna... And the guy said, the pastor of this church said, "Yeah, um, good. Well, let me show you where we're doing ministry." And then you can just kind of, we can complement each other. You can kind of focus on a different area. He said, that's great. That's a good idea. So he put up the map. Um, and then he drew a circle around the entire metro area. And he said, this is kind of our focus. And then you can really kind of work outside of that. There's four million people inside of the circle. Four million people. How big is their building going to be? Sometimes as Anglicans, we have a tendency to think, if you come in here, there's only a certain number of Anglicans in this area, and so we're just diluting Anglicans between churches, and that doesn't strengthen anything. Honestly, we're not after Anglicans. We're after the unbelievers. If somebody is still a lingering Anglican and they're not connected with who we are out there, I don't know if I want them. I mean, like, really, they're just now deciding, yeah, this church I'm in right now is kind of bad. I think they might come out. Yes! 
Yes, and it's been that way for a long time. That is not our goal, to plant churches, to be able to gather some disgruntled Anglicans wherever we might be able to find them. We want to reach the people who don't know Jesus. And there's plenty of people around to fill our churches that meet that qualification. All right, so how do we do this? How do we do this here in our midst? How do we do this in the Anglican Diocese of the South? How can we be a place that, is, that, that church planting is, is, is something that we love and are excited about? And not just a byline, not just a 10-minute report, not just a piece of paper, not just something that's, that's on our little sign over there to plant new congregations, number two. Um, it's not just there. How does this become more of a reality for us? Here's the first thing. We need this kind of biblical conviction that this is what we have been called to do. If we don't have this conviction, listen, church planning is hard, and it's risky, and it's scary, and it costs money, and it all doesn't always work. It's, it's inherently risky because it's on the edges of mission. Um, if we don't have a conviction for this, we'll never do it. It's really easy to do a whole lot of other stuff that serves ourselves. And church planning is all about those who do not get belong to us. We have to hold this conviction that says whether we like it or not, we're doing it because God has called us to it. And that we would be unfaithful if we don't. And then that word, that we could be disobedient or unfaithful to our Lord, should scare us. We have to have this conviction. We also have to have, we have, to have a culture of church planting. And then what I mean by that is that church planting starts to become normative, not, not rare, not for the radical fringe. But normative for us that your local church can be a part of planting more churches. However big you are, however old you are, whatever ethos you have, you can be a part of planting more churches. You can band together to plant churches. You can give money to plant churches. You can raise up leaders to plant churches. Three or four churches can come together to help another one get started. When we start to see this as our responsibility in order to be able to reach the lost, and that we start gauging our wins, not by how many people we have in our own seats, but how the kingdom is growing. That's when church planting is going to be a part of our culture and something that we are about. Listen, here's the thing. I get to do this on a provincial level and talk to dioceses and things, and I have had many people come to me from the church planting world and say, Dan, what you're trying to do on a provincial level will not work. Because here's what I'm trying to do at the provincial level along with our leadership team. And so we're trying to help dioceses see that dioceses are uniquely positioned to be able to support church planting in healthy ways. And here's why they're telling me it won't work. They say, Dan, you can't do it through the diocese. You've got to go around the diocese. Because the diocese is going to be full of bureaucracy. And the diocese is built for safety. And it's built for comfort. And, uh, and, and here's what's going to happen. Oh, they might put up with you for a while. But then they're going to come after you. Because you're going to challenge things. Because you're going to challenge their safety, and you're going to challenge their budget, and you're going to challenge their, uh, their, their comfort, and you're going to try to make them think outside of their local congregations. And they do not want that, because as long as they can keep their heads dug into their local congregations, everything is just fine. And so if you keep trying to be prophetic in this and pushing that, they're going to come after you, and they're going to find a way to get you out of there. You've got to do this church planning thing around diocese. I have, I have dying on the hill of saying that is absolutely and completely not true. That we can be a diocese that is not a detriment to the work of mission. 
that doesn't become insulated and inwardly turned and full of bureaucracy and so concerned with ourselves that we lose sight of the mission. I will die on this hill. If I die poor, alone, and a failure, this is the call that God has given to me, is to say to our diocese, no, maybe that's what diocese used to be. Maybe that's the model that you've seen before, but not here. Not in ADOS, it won't be that way. But it has to be an intentionality about this, friends, that celebrates church planning and, and, and is, is up for risk. It's going to take risk. We're going to bring church planners up here and we're going to say, this guy's going to plant a church. Everybody pray for him. They're going to go, yay. And then the next year we're going to go, it didn't work. And instead of looking at that guy and going, what's wrong with you? We heal. We love. We say thank you for your faithfulness in that. Let's figure out how we can do this even better next time and support you even better next time. And we learn and we grow. It's going to take money in our budget. It's, it, and it costs money. And it just, most of our finance, uh, the people who are in finance in churches and dioceses run small businesses or small churches. And, and so there isn't a research and development arm of small businesses. And so they don't know what to do with us. Because, because dioceses start to think about, we've got $1, you show me the return for my $1, and if that metric doesn't add up like I want it to add up, we're going to cut things. You can't judge church planting that way. You can't judge, you can't judge church planting by a metric of how many churches we had last year, how many churches we had this year, is there more? How many dollars did we give to each one of them? It doesn't work that way. This is a grassroots missional organization that challenges our comfort and safety. And so what we have to have in our culture as a diocese is a generosity, not a stupidity. We have stewardship in our generosity, right? Um, but a generosity towards the work of mission and church planting. And we have to resist the call to turn inward and meet all our own needs first, and then see if we have anything left over to give out. And that takes intentionality. Extreme prayer and intentionality. We need a culture that has expectations of itself that, um, that churches should be planted. We need to plant more churches within ADOS. And you can look at me and you can say, Dan, yeah, you need to plant more churches within ADOS. I can't plant more churches within ADOS. We can. We can. Together, beginning on the local level, we can. There's other stuff, too, that I'm not going to go into of the support systems we need for church planning, of uh, assessment, training, and coaching, and all these kind of things that we're working on and we're doing. I just want to leave us with this idea. The call for God, the call from God, is for us to go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. The church is the hope of the world. And we are the church. We are the messengers of the good news of the gospel. That's what we've been called to. And yes, there's stewardship of the institution that we have to have. But our stewardship of the institution cannot get in the way of our missional work to go out. The only reason the institution exists is to be a people who live in worship of God and are built up to be sent out into the world. That's why we exist. And so I beg you to join me in prayer for our diocese. That we will become more and more a church planting diocese. The church planting will be normative to who we are. That we'll be passionate about this. That we'll take risks. That that when we get um, that when we get turned inward, that we'll repent and that we'll turn back outward again. That we'll value our church planters. That we'll be okay with risks. 
that we won't see non-ever-increasing numbers as a, uh, as, a, as a problem, but as an opportunity. Listen, the ACNA and ADOTS, we're new. We are new. We are still very, very new. And we have this small window of time to create a DNA that will, that will shape our institution, our organization, and our North American expression of Anglicanism for generations to come. That's the moment that we're in right now. That's the moment. And if we lose this moment, so much of what we've gone through and sacrificed to get here will be lost. We have not been set free from the Episcopal Church and from bad theology just to have a safe place to die. We have been set free to do the work of mission so that others may live. And we must plant churches that preach this gospel. And we must be a diocese that sees that happen. At whatever cost. Pray with you. Glorious Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you that you have said that you are building your church. And the very gates of hell will not prevail against it. We thank you that hell has to have gates to try to keep us out. And that you have said... We're going to harrow hell itself. That we're going to be able to bring the people out of darkness and into your light. That they were once not a people, but we can help make them a people. That we are a holy priesthood. That we are a people set apart for you. So Lord, help us. Help us to, to balance. Help us to know how to tend to our institution well and the structures. Help us to know how to do that. Give us wisdom and structure well. Let us grow our local churches in health. But then also, Lord, let us not neglect your call to go, to be fruitful, multiply. Lord, give us favor. Give us resources. Give us leaders. Give us a passion. Give us a hunger. Give us a need to reach the laws. Lord, and what we pray is that through our diocese and through our local churches and through our bishops and through our leaders, that what we will see happen is a revival in the church. That the Spirit will fall in such mighty ways that people will come to know you by the droves. That your name will be praised from the mountaintops. And Lord, where our expectations fall short of that, where we have gotten into a rut of normalcy, Lord, break us out of that. Wake, O oh sleeper, wake us up. And let us have the expectation of Pentecost, that when your Spirit falls upon us as an act, that we will be your witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. Lord, and we rest fully on the grace of your cross, the victory of your resurrection, and your assurance that you will be with us always until the very end of the age. All for the glory of your name, all by the power of your spirit. Amen. Anglican Diocese of the South. Thank you for listening.